Love Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio Show, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings the state leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join us in this conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I'll be your host this morning. Today, for the first time, uh, for the second time, we will not only be taking your calls, but we will also have our chat room open. I think this will be give you another vehicle in which to participate in the show. Christy Ty will be taking calls this morning. Christy, can you please explain the process? I sure will. Good morning, Rain. Good morning, everyone. Now, if you want to call in, just dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four. Once again, one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four. When you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, just press one and that will indicate on my switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. I'll get your name, and I'll get your question or your topic. And also, remember, if you're on the phone line, turn down the volume on your computer and just listen on the phone since there is a little bit of a delay. Now, if you're just listening on your computer, we do have our chat room feature that you can log into. We'll be monitoring the chat room, and we'll pass some of the comments or questions along to our speaker. To log in on the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, Christy. This past April, the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled in the most recent Abbott decision that the state aid cuts made last year needed to be reinstated. It was a 3-2 decision and one that made very few people happy. Even the Education Law Center, who argued that the cuts should be reinstated, wanted the school funding formula to be reinstated for all the school districts that were under adequacy. Those who were unhappy with previous court rulings were even more unhappy with this most recent ruling. For better or worse, school funding in New Jersey has been centered around the Abbott rulings. It is an attempt by the court to make sure our most needy students get the same or almost the same educational opportunities as their more wealthy counterparts. Some view the Abbott rulings as a almost a complete failure and a perfect example of how spending more money does not equate to success. Others would say that many students enter school with such socioeconomic disadvantages that additional funding is needed for them just to keep up since their parents do not have the resources uh, at home to provide for this education, especially in some of our more urban communities where they have a high concentration of high-need students. The most recent court ruling, however, has not ended the school funding debate in New Jersey. Actually, I think it has heated up, and if you look back on it, none of those rulings have ended the debate. I suspect I suspect that the debate will be revived again this, this fall. Today we are discussing school funding with two people who have different backgrounds, and may have different perspectives on school funding, or at least somewhat different perspectives. First, we have Senator Michael Doherty from the 23rd District. Welcome, Senator. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you with us. We are also fortunate to have with us Geraldine Carroll, the superintendent from the Lindenwald School District and president of Great Schools New Jersey and Association of High-Needs Districts. Welcome, Superintendent. Good morning, and thank you. Okay, Senator Doherty, uh, before we get into the issues, could you just briefly describe uh, the 23rd District, where it is, and uh, what it's comprised of, and how long long you've been a representative there? Uh, Yes, the 23rd Legislative District, (laughs) excuse me, the district covers most of uh, Hunterdon County and all of Warren County. I've been in the legislature for almost 10 years. I was in the General Assembly for eight years and the uh, State Senate for the last two years. Okay, and uh, Superintendent Carroll, uh, 
would you please describe the Lindenwald District and how long you've been there? Um, the Lindenwald School District is an urban district uh, located in a suburban setting. We are about 12 miles from Philadelphia, located along the high-speed line, and um, we are a relatively low socioeconomic district. I've been the superintendent and curriculum director here for nine years, and previously I was the superintendent and curriculum director in Clayton Public Schools, um, which was a Bacon district in Gloucester County. So I've been an urban educator for uh, most of my career. And uh, for clarification, I don't think your district is an Abbott district, am I correct? My district is not an Abbott district. However, it exhibits many of the characteristics of the Abbott districts in the socioeconomic um, status of the community, the ability to pay, and the at-risk and special needs of our students. And also, uh, Senator Doherty, you do have an Abbott district in your legislative district, am I correct? Uh, yes, I represent Phillipsburg, which uh, includes Phillipsburg High School, and it is an Abbott district. Okay. Um, before we get on to how we should fund schools, Senator Doherty, you've been a, 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 since you've been in the legislature, and probably before that, you've been a critic of the, the Abbott rulings in the school funding in New Jersey. What's your main objection to how we fund schools? My main objection is that uh, it uh, leads to high property taxes, how we fund our schools. We have the New Jersey Supreme Court has hijacked the entire process. The Constitution is very clear. The legislature is supposed to make these decisions, but for about 30 years now, the court has been front and center. So first and foremost, uh, the Constitution of New Jersey is not being followed. The legislature is supposed to make the decisions. And I believe the Constitution of New Jersey also states that the money should be distributed equally as well. That would be Article 8, Section 4, Paragraph 2. Uh, in addition, uh, people have a vague sense that uh, perhaps uh, we're helping out poor kids. You know, maybe they're getting $2 for every dollar a child in the suburbs is getting. But that's absolutely untrue. As a matter of fact, when you start running the numbers, we have situations where suburban towns are paying 10 times as much per person into the income tax fund, and then when it comes time to distribute the money, uh, the uh, Abbott districts and some of the urban districts are getting 65 times as much per student. Uh, the worst case is up in Bergen County, I was up in Wyckoff, 165 times as much per student. So. The income tax in New Jersey accounts for the economic differences among our residents. The top 1% pay 40% of all income taxes. The bottom third pays zero. That accounts for the ability to pay. And once we collect that money, the money should be divided equally for each student, which would be about $7,500 for each student. But right now, after we collect all this money progressively, where some towns are paying 10 times or more into the fund per person, uh, we see the money distributed where towns are, some towns are getting uh, 65 times as much per student. For example, um, uh, Asbury Park, they're getting $25,000 per student. And I have towns in my district that are getting uh, less than $200 per student. So I don't know how anybody can say that's fair. Uh, I don't know how anybody can say that the income tax doesn't account for the ability to pay. So the bottom line is it's been hijacked by the court. The legislature is not following its constitutional role, which requires that the money to be divided equally. And when you look at the numbers and how the money comes into the system and how it's distributed, 
it is beyond unbelievable uh, that people say that the status quo should stay in effect. All right. So your main point is that um, income tax is based on, obviously, income, so that it's collected. uh, The wealthy people are already putting a lot more in so that the money should be distributed equally per student after that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're not talking wealthy people. We're talking middle-class people. I mean, you should come visit some of my towns. I'd like to see the wealthy sections. Uh, Let's compare a lot of suburban towns uh, to these Abbott districts. And these suburban towns with hard middle-class working people that are one paycheck away themselves from the poorhouse are paying, as I said, in many instances, ten times as much into the income tax fund. Then when it comes time to distribute that income tax, in school aid, they're getting peanuts compared to what these other districts are getting. And as a matter of fact, the Abbott districts in, in most instances are now spending a heck of a lot more, sometimes double the amount that is spent in suburban districts. So to say that the resources are not there is just unbelievable. Uh, also, there's been many reports that have come out recently. The Supreme Court is all wrong uh, in many respects. For example, uh, they have ordered three- and four-year preschool fully funded to be paid for by the rest of us. Instances where uh, Hoboken has three- and four-year preschool, and we have uh, rural areas that demographically are much poorer than Hoboken. Uh, they can't even afford full-day uh, kindergarten. Uh, and there was a study that just came out from the federal government, the the entire concept of Head Start three- and four-year preschool was totally debunked. The study found and concluded that by the first grade, there is absolutely no discernible difference between a student that attended Head Start or a student that didn't attend Head Start. So we're spending in New Jersey over $600 million a year on a program that the most recent study by the Federal Department of Health and Human Services found was totally ineffective and provided no negligible benefit for any student by the first grade. Yet the Supreme Court based its recent decision in part on that failed educational theory that if we spend this money uh, and uh, we're going to get these results, but the the results aren't aren't there. All right. Superintendent Carroll, I'm sure sure you have several thoughts on this, but uh, what are your thoughts on the current system now? Well, on the current system now, if the funding formula was in fact funded as it was supposed to be uh, designated, then I think that some of the fair uh, distribution of funding would be addressed. Um, The the new funding formula was designed to um, identify a basic source of aid and then identify different categories where additional aid was uh, was needed, and um, it was designed to address some of the disequities in the Abbott school districts and to not have the Abbott system be a runaway train. Um, I don't disagree at all with the senator in that there are districts where there is municipal overburden, where there are uh, communities that are paying more taxes than they should be paying, and that's largely because the funding that has been coming from the state adequate. Um, the the current formula has two 
two sides to it. It has the expenditure side, which establishes an adequacy amount and provides for the basic instruction as well as categories where additional aid is necessary. And then it has the revenue side, the the state aid, um, the amount that comes in taxes, and then the local fair share. Um, in in some of these districts that are spending below an adequacy amount or below the recommended amount, um, in in many cases there are higher taxes in those communities because the state has not in fact funded the formula that the legislators proposed and that the Supreme Court in fact in its previous ruling agreed with. there are many cases where the funding is, in fact, not following the children, where, in fact, there are districts that have seen decreases in enrollment but are still getting state aid for the students that um, they don't have, whereas there are other districts where they have additional students and they're not getting the revenue because the funding formula hasn't been mm-hmm. uh, applied correctly or or fully. Um, When it was proposed by the legislature and and passed, there was a provision put in there for within three years, there would be full funding of the formula. And that has not happened because um, the, the districts that were getting money that they technically shouldn't have been getting from the state for students that they don't actually have um, would have seen a a big drop in their state aid, and in order to avoid that in those districts, uh, stabilization aid was provided, and then um, the formula itself has never been fully and properly funded. So that's what I see as the problem. Um, I don't disagree with the senator that in many cases there are communities, my own community itself, which is being um, overtaxed because the state has not met its burden of providing aid for the children that we are currently serving and for the programs that we're required to provide. Now, the senator uh, had indicated that his system was more or less based on the equal amount per student. Uh, His number's a little little over 7,000. The current formula has a and it's a kind of a complicated formula, which I think the senator would attest to, uh, that has a lot of different factors in there for socioeconomics and transportation and a lot of other issues. Would you, what do you think of an idea? I'm trying to think how to put this. Do urban students or poor students need more funding to educate? Because that's the basis premises of the school funding formula. Well, the basic premise from an educational standpoint is that all children need certain things. They need food, clothing, and shelter. They need proper medical care, safe supervision before and after school and within their homes. They need a positive um, adult role model, language experiences and background knowledge. Um, They need pre-K, full-day K, um, if necessary, depending on their circumstances, English language services, um, lots of literacy. They need transportation if they need that to get to school based on where they live, and in some cases there are special education services that are necessary. Um, this is this is necessary for all children. The question is um, the difference in how it's provided in a more affluent community as opposed to a poorer community. In an affluent community, prior to the start of the school year, if a child needs to have shots to go to school, then... Um, the parent makes an appointment with the doctor, takes the child to the to the doctor, gets the the child shots. In a poorer community, uh, there's the issue of paying 
for the shots. There's the issue of access to a clinic and the issue of transportation to get the child to the clinic and uh, various other things that make it far more difficult, causing in some cases children to not be able to start school on time and to, to miss the educational opportunity and have a gap. Um, additionally, in, in many of those uh, wealthier communities, parents will provide pre-K or they will provide a full-day K program or whatever they deem is, is uh, appropriate for their child. They'll also have numerous language experiences and provide background knowledge through family trips and, and other experiences. In a poorer community, a lot of these things are not able to be provided by the parents because in many cases they barely have enough money to uh, provide the food, clothing, and shelter that, that their families need. And so these very same things that the affluent students are having provided by their parents in the poorer communities need, if we're going to have a level playing field for all of the children to have equal access to the educational program, in many cases um, in the poorer districts, these programs need to be provided from uh, by the school. Even the simple act of transportation, if there's inclement weather and a child is a walking student in a suburban community that's a little bit more affluent, mom or dad piles the the kids into the into the SUV and off they go to school. In a poor community where the, the family is not eligible for transportation and the child needs to walk to school, if, it, if there's a huge downpour and there happens to be a younger sib, then um, mom may not be able or willing to take the student to school because then everybody gets soaked, you have the younger child, and, and there may not be daycare. There are a lot of social issues, and therefore the child may stay home, and then, then the educational gaps grow. So providing all of these additional uh, safety nets and, and additional services in an urban district simply makes up for what the suburban parent just naturally tends to provide for their children. It's not that the urban students need more. They need the same thing. It's just who is going to pay for it and how is it going to be provided. Senator, you know, those no. are the categorical things that are listed in the formula. And if they're fully provided, then we're able to level the playing field and, and do some good things for kids. Senator, do you have any response to any of that? Uh, yeah, I could probably go on for an hour. Uh, I would <laughs> please, say uh, that, please don't a, do that. It, it is it is a legend that if the SFRA, the School Funding Reform Act, is fully funded, somehow these suburban towns are going to get lower property taxes. If uh, you take a look, I was in Madison pitching my fair school funding plan the other night, and if you take a look at what Madison would get uh, under the fully funded fair school funding plan over what they're getting right now, they would get nothing more. They got about $349,000 uh, for all of their students, 2,285 students, uh, which that comes out to about $153 a student. And this idea, which a lot of people spin, is, oh, if we fully fund the SFRA, everything's going to be solved. That's not true. Right now we have... 20% of the students getting 60% of all education dollars. And if we fully funded the SFRA, towns like Madison would not get a dollar more. 
and it would it would change the ratio a little bit. We'd have about 20% of the students getting 50%, a little over 50% of the money. So uh, right now we have a situation where towns like Madison are sending in, you compare it to Asbury Park and Abbott District, Madison has a income tax liability of over $3,000 a person versus Asbury Park, which is a little over $300. So every man, woman, and child from the youngest baby to the oldest resident in, in Madison sending in 10 times as much into the income tax fund. Yet when it comes time to distribute the school aid, Asbury Park is getting over $25,000 a student versus uh, Madison Borough, about 155 times as much per student. And when you start looking at some of the variables that the superintendent talked about in the School Funding Reform Act, at-risk students, you get an at-risk designation by signing a student up for free or reduced-price lunch. <clears throat> Excuse me, and you can be at 180% of the poverty level and get a reduced-price lunch, which gives you the at-risk designation, which means about another $4,500 going to that student. If you sign up over 60% of your students, you get $5,500 for each student, plus you get $402 for safety money for an at-risk student versus $70 for a student who's not at risk. Now, the reason I say this is that the state auditor just issued a report. He actually took a look. Okay, we have all these kids signed up for at-risk, about 428000 in the state of New Jersey. <laughs> he determined after his audit, that students had been who had been verified as being at risk and were receiving this extra uh, five six thousand dollars, he determined that thirty seven percent of them were ineligible. He concluded that it's a great conflict of interest that school districts have an incentive to sign these students up, and they would get the five to six thousand dollars extra for each student, and concluded that maybe we shouldn't use this. As a matter of fact, he said we shouldn't use the at-risk designation anymore. The state auditor for the state of New Jersey, Stephen Ells, said we shouldn't use the at-risk designation because it's so inaccurate. 37%. We're talking state and federal fraud. Signing students up, knowing you're getting the extra five or $6,000, knowing that nobody's checking, which nobody has been, and he concluded that this needs to be thrown out of the equation. Another thing in the equation is the real estate wealth of a town. The problem with that variable being in the equation is that many towns give away tax abatements. And our state comptroller, Matthew Boxer, issued a report in August of 2010 in which he highlighted the many abuses that occur. So what happens is many of these urban mayors, they say, hey, I can give away a tax abatement to a developer for this new building. It comes off the income tax rolls, actually taking the money away from the school system. But they don't care because they have a thing called payment in lieu of taxes, a backdoor tax payment where the municipal coffers still collect the money as a payment in lieu of taxes. They take it away from the school. They take it away from the county. But you know why they don't care? Because they're actually getting more money through payment in lieu of taxes. Their real estate values reported to the state are now lower. And we're paying for their schools, and that's a good number. So the lower your real estate values, the more money you get. So there are major, uh, there are major 
uh, problems with our school funding formula. The at-risk designation, the state auditor said it shouldn't be used because it's so inaccurate, and people are obviously signing kids up when they're not qualified. You know, the, uh, real, the real estate values, it needs to go because it's the Wild West out there, and these urban mayors are giving away tax abatements. For example, Jersey City has given away over $2 billion of tax abatements. That would be $130 million of revenue property tax revenue that they've given away. And you're asking the suburban and rural taxpayers to continue to support such a corrupt system? I say no. Let's stop it. Let's have some transparency. Let's have an easy-to-administer system that's fair to everybody. When you collect the income tax progressively, those who make more pay more, the bottom third pays zero. When you have that money that you collect through the income tax, that money should be divided equally for each student. Okay, uh, Senator, uh, before I go on, because uh, I'm sure the superintendent has uh, a comment, uh, we're talking with Senator Michael Doherty uh, and Superintendent Geraldine Carroll from the Lindenwald District on school funding. If you want to call in and ask a question, the number is 1-347-989-8904 and press 1. Or if you're on the chat room, you can uh, just type in a question and we'll try to get it to them. Um, superintendent Carroll, uh, actually, I think the senator used a, a strong word, fraud, that uh, that the school districts, when they sign kids up for free and reduced lunch, can you explain that process and uh, to our listeners? This isn't this isn't a question of signing kids up as if we go out and we solicit kids. There are very strict requirements that the federal government has that um, we implement, and I, I can speak for my district and how we implement it and how um, we send our folks for training on what the federal requirements are. And um, there is a form that we send home with all children, as we are directed to do. The parents um, submit the form explaining what their income level is. We then verify based on some guidelines provided by our auditor as to the number and um, randomness of verification, and we ask for documentation of income tax and, and that sort of thing to make sure that, in fact, the numbers they're reporting are the numbers that are accurate. And then based on the verification, we send out a letter indicating whether the child is eligible for free, reduced, um, or full pay lunch. And yes, that money is is um, or those uh, qualifications do in fact generate additional funds. But we don't go out and solicit. We follow the guidelines that are provided for us, and we are we have these things checked in our annual audit. And I can speak for my school district. Um, we do not, in fact, have areas where students have been found to be ineligible when they have said that they were eligible. If we find that the parent on the form has uh, reported something inaccurate and when we do our verification it is shown to be inaccurate, we do not qualify that child for free lunch or for or for reduced lunch. They're only uh, qualified based on the actual, actual information that is, is reported and accurate. So um, it's a very detailed process. It's very, very time-consuming. We do it at the beginning of every school year to recertify all children, and if we have any new enrollees upon their enrollment, we um, we require that they fill out the form because that's what we are expected to do. We don't go out on the street corner and solicit kids to sign up, so we'll get The whole purpose of the program is to provide free or reduced lunch for those students who are eligible and who are in need of that feeding program. Um, 
and uh, to address the other part of the discussion when the senator spoke about uh, the distribution of the funding, I know that in Lindenwald School District, I can't speak for the other districts except to say that this is a recurring pattern. In Lindenwald, the shortfall in the 2010-11 school year funding we should have gotten based on the formula was $1.904 million. And um, that money, a great deal of that money, would have gone for tax relief because the reason our tax rate is as high as the tax rate is is because we have not received adequate funding from the state in order to um, in order to educate our children. So we go out to the to the voters on the election day in April, and uh, we ask the voters for a tax increase. If we got the money from the state, we would not be asking for the tax increase. And in fact, this year, when we did get um, a 1% increase, we went back out to the voters and we we provided a budget that was a tax decrease. In fact, we had a tax decrease last year. In fact, we have reduced our taxes as we get additional funding from the state. We have successfully reduced our taxes to the level that our community was paying back in 2001. So when we get the money, we turn it back around and we give the tax relief. And that's part of the formula. The formula has two sides to it. If the revenue comes from state aid, it does not come from local local property taxes, and it reduces the local taxes. Um, to address the issue of the real estate, um, that's a political issue that's handled by the municipalities that the school districts have absolutely no control over. Um, and in my particular community, we have a, a relatively low property value and that's largely because we have virtually no rateables. We have some county buildings, we have some um, tax-exempt churches, and we have the school district. It's not a huge um, land area, and there are very, very few businesses. There are some small businesses, but there are very, very few rateables in town. And as a result of that, we are not getting uh, that tax support from uh, businesses, we are getting the tax support, unfortunately, from the homeowners. Now, uh, we just were notified by the Department of Education that we will be receiving some additional uh, state aid. We're very excited about that. Um, we will be discussing it as a Board of Education, and I'm sure that that same discussion is going to be happening in virtually every every. Uh, school community where, you know, what are we going to do with this money? There are certain restrictions on what you can do with the money. But to be perfectly honest, if we have an opportunity in the following subsequent school year budget, not the since the rate is set for 2012-13, obviously we we can't, or 11-12 rather, we obviously uh, not change that budget, but rolling forward in 12-13, some of this money is going to roll over and be provided for tax relief. Um, we do the very best we can to provide tax relief whenever the money is provided for us. If the money is not there, well, then the children still come, and we still need to provide the services. And by the way, many of those services are mandated services provided or, or guided by the Department of Education and by the state, and we're required to provide the services. And um, costs go up, and, and these services do cost money. So unless somewhere, um, we can't meet our requirement to provide programs. All right. Um, 
There's a lot there on, on all aspects of it. But Senator Doherty, you have a plan out there, uh, which I probably should mention, uh, and you probably will mention later on. Uh, uh, Superintendent Carroll indicated that if the formula was funded, she would have received a lot more aid in her district. But I think the, the funding formula is based on the numbers that you talked about, the at-risk students, and she has a high number. She has a lot of the same problems that a Abbott district has. But your plan actually, I guess, if I get it correctly, would go to um, how many, I think you say about 85% of districts would receive more aid. Um is based on just the student number. Yeah, Am I well, correct? Yeah, I, listen, I, I yeah, I wanted to uh, just address one topic. And I know uh, Superintendent Carroll is administering a uh, honest uh, lunch program there, but the fact remains that the state auditor looked at verified students. Now, these have been verified by the school districts to the Department of Agriculture for the state of New Jersey, and they administer this, and they give the designation uh, through the DOE, the at-risk student. Thirty-seven percent of the records that they checked turned out that the students were not eligible. So we're talking the potential for some massive fraud here of hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars going on. So that is why the state auditor concluded that this should no longer be used as a, uh, a variable for determining any kind of state aid or state assistance. Uh, and we have a situation right now where uh, those who make more pay significantly more in the bottom third pay nothing. And we have uh, some corruption in the School Funding Reform Act with signing up the kids for at risk for the free lunch, the real estate values, uh, the uh, the three- and four-year preschool where this study just came out from the federal government that there's no improvement. Uh, and we're asking people to pay more uh, in, in New Jersey. So, I think the only way to solve the problems of New Jersey, it's really a property tax problem. People pay high property taxes. They can't afford to stay in their homes. They can't sell their homes because the property taxes are too high. And in view of some of this corruption we're seeing in the system with the administration of the School Funding Reform Act, I propose that we just need to let everybody have some skin in the game. Let's have a simple, transparent, easy-to-administer system that's going to end some of these abuses, that's going to end situations where certain school districts are paying their bus drivers overtime to charge up their cell phones, which is a fact, which has been documented. Uh, every student should get the same amount of money, regardless of where they're at. That would treat every student fairly, and it would also follow the Constitution, because I think there's another important component here. Our Constitution, Article 8, Section 4, Paragraph 2, says that we have a school fund and that the school fund should be annually appropriated for the equal benefit of all the residents of the state. This is something that's been in the New Jersey Constitution going back to 1844. And the practice going back to 1844 is when you have a pot of money called the school fund that every student gets the same amount. And in fact, that's what New Jersey did going back to 1844. It's only in the last 30 years where the Supreme Court has hijacked this entire process based upon false Assumptions such as having three- and four-year preschool is going to have a tangible result for our students, which it doesn't. Well, and so, therefore, that's why I'm proposing my fair school funding plan. Every student gets the same amount of money, regardless of where that student lives, and that's after the money has been collected via a progressive income tax. Uh, 
Superintendent, uh, the center has mentioned a couple times. And before I go to you, uh, Superintendent, uh, Senator, your plan you believe would provide tax relief to most, the vast majority yes. of school 85, districts? 85 percent. I've run the numbers, and 85 percent of the school districts would uh, get uh, significantly more aid. And this is on both sides of the aisle. I happen to be a Republican, but when you look at you know, Senator Sarlo in Bergen County, he's the budget chairman in the Senate. Every every one of his towns, I was up in Teaneck last night, Loretta Weinberg's hometown would get about $30 million more. Edison, represented by Barbara Buono, they would get $98 million more. Woodbridge, represented by Senator Vitale, they would get $80 million more. It's unbelievable how many of these senators and legislators that happen to be on the other side of the aisle, their towns are being taken advantage of as well. So it's my goal, and I'm conducting these town hall meetings across the state. Whoever would invite me to come to their town, I will make the presentation. This fair school funding plan is going to mean more money for 85% of the school districts in the state of New Jersey. And what it's going to mean is it's going to change that ratio. So instead of 20% of the kids getting 60% of the money, uh, we're going to have a more fair distribution. And people will say, well, you're being unfair to poor people. I don't understand how it's unfair. The bottom third pay nothing into the fund that's used to provide school aid. They pay zero. As a matter of fact, they get an earned income credit on top of paying nothing into the income tax fund. So how is it unfair that when you have the top 1% pay 40% and the bottom third pay zero, and everybody still, even if you paid zero, your children are still getting $7,500 for school aid. How is that unfair? It's not, and that's what we need to do, because unless we do this, we're going to continue to have the scams and the fraud and the manipulation of the numbers presented to the state of New Jersey, because that's what we have right now. And that's not me talking. That's the state auditor, the state comptroller, and this federal report. We have a school funding reform act that's based upon false information that's presented to the state of New Jersey, and it needs to change. And everybody needs to have skin in the game. And when they have skin in the game, they're going to stop these abuses, such as the story of Superintendent Charles Epps going over to London on his you know, five-star hotel trip paid for by the taxpayers, and abuses right. abuses such as having bus drivers get paid overtime to charge up their cell phones. Because it's certainly not happening go. in suburban districts. Let me go on, because there's a lot there. Uh, two things. Uh, Superintendent, did I hear you correctly uh, when you were talking about the, uh, the free and reduced lunch? Are you mandated to do that program by the federal government? We are mandated to do that program by the federal government, and we follow all the guidelines per the the requirements. And and I would I would say that what is of greatest concern is the concept of painting all school districts with the same brush. There may very well be, as in every area, I would I would venture to say in the legislature, I would venture to say in the private sector, I would event, I would venture to say that in every aspect of our of our society, there are those people who abuse, but to to accuse everybody of not following the the guidelines and to accuse everybody of not doing what they're supposed to be doing and of taking advantage and of committing fraud I don't believe is accurate and um I think that those people who are uh playing the system as it were should be in fact um investigated and should be in fact corrected because they are hurting all of us um, having said that, those folks who are doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, the funding is necessary for the children. 
Um, I'd also like to address the preschool issue for a moment. Yes, and that, again, was, I that was actually going to be my question because the senator mentioned several times about preschool, uh, and uh, I, I can only you, you might have a different perspective on that. Yes, and I and I can only speak again from my school district, but I know that we have um, approximately a universe of 200 um, children that are eligible for, let's just say, four-day um, pre-K. And we are able to service only about um, 75 of those children. And that means there are 125 kids out there that are probably, unless the parents uh, pay for it, are probably not getting the preschool services that they need. Now, I will tell you, we've had, uh, we just completed our second year of full-day pre-K, and the children that are, um, that finished the program last year went into our kindergarten, and to a child, every single child was performing at a higher level in literacy and in math in the kindergarten and has exited from the kindergarten going into first grade now on grade level in literacy. Now, that is unheard of. In addition, the, the impact of pre-K has a, a larger perspective. Um, when we get the children at a very early age, parents uh, buy into the community and buy into the school system and make a greater effort to, um, to stay in a stable environment so their children can, can succeed, whereas uh, children who come in later to the system, parents, if the circumstances arise, um, are not as committed to keeping their children um, in the same school district. We happen to have a very, very high mobility rate, somewhere in the 58% level. That's one in two children who move out or in during the school year. That's a real problem. If we could build that sense of community at pre-K and have those children continue, then we wouldn't be constantly playing catch-up. In addition to that, when those children are in full-day pre-K, those parents know that their children are in a safe and orderly environment. The parents are included in in the program in that we have many, many outreach efforts and training and opportunities for parents to learn how to provide those literacy uh, conversations and literacy experiences and background information for their children when they're at home. They become part of the school community, and that makes up for some of the, some of the educational gaps that you find between impoverished children as compared to affluent children. Um, in our particular case, we have data that shows that our pre-K children that are going through the pre-K program in our school district are soaring. They're absolutely um, doing dramatically better than their counterparts who have not gone through a pre-K program in our well, school district. Well, is your pre-K... Uh, I just have one quick question, and Dorothy. Is your pre-K program uh, Head Start, or is it something that you run your you um, yourself? Our pre-K program follows the state model. We use something called Creative Curriculum, which, by the way, our neighboring Head Start also happens to use. But um, we use the the state model. We follow it exactly, and we've been commended for the structure of our of our pre-K program, and we're seeing results. Okay, Senator, you had so, one more? Once again, if yeah, you know, I, I, maybe I, those programs that are not okay. functioning the way they're supposed to, but my my point is that when the program is being followed properly, it's being implemented properly, the dramatic impact of ch on children is um, absolutely there. 
And we okay, have- and, and, and well, to that I would say the department, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, just did a conducted a major study on the Head Start program, which is basically a three and four year uh, preschool at the funded by the federal government to the tune of nine billion dollars a year for one million students, and they actually embargoed the results of the study for a couple of years because they were shocked to find that by the first grade there was absolutely no difference between a student who attended the Head Start program and a student who didn't. And they went back and they said, go back and look at this, try to come up with something positive. This was all reported recently in Time magazine. And they determined that there was nothing positive to report, and they eventually had to issue the report. So it's based upon a theory, and uh, perhaps the superintendent can tell the federal government what they can do to correct their program because according to the federal government study there's no discernible difference. In addition, you know, we're we're in very tight fiscal times. New Jersey's got the most expensive public school system not only in the country but on the face of the earth. And our constitution requires a, a public education system for the ages 5 to 18. And I I'm joined by many who were very upset when the Supreme Court ordered under the constitution to provide education for three and four year when the constitution says five to 18. In addition, there's a lot of inequities in what towns get three and four year preschool and what towns don't. Hoboken, which many say has more millionaires per square mile than any other town in the state of New Jersey, has fully funded three and four year preschool. So before parents go to those Wall Street jobs, if you happen to live in Hoboken, you can drop your child off at fully funded three and four year preschool. Meanwhile, when you compare it to some of the towns out in my neck of the woods, compare Hoboken to Sussex Borough up in Sussex County. And Sussex Borough, by all uh, socioeconomic factors, education factors, Hoboken blows it away. But Sussex Borough struggles up there getting virtually no school aid. They have no fully funded three- and four-year preschool. Meanwhile, Hoboken, uh, they have fully funded three- and four-year preschool, even though the income levels per family are double, the education levels dramatically are way above what you have in Sussex Borough. So uh, I believe that we can't, first of all, that taxes are at all-time high. We have the most expensive public school system. The Constitution doesn't require it, even though the court said we had to do it. And the studies conducted by the federal government show that there's no tangible difference. So in view of that, in a view of the tight budgets and the high property taxes, I, I, I don't I don't really see the continued value of having to fund a three- and four-year preschool, especially for the court to order it. Now, if the state of New Jersey and the legislature decide they want to do that, that's fine. But you got to understand, it. this was ordered by the Supreme Court. There was no choice, and, and I find that appalling. And the court based its decisions on the idea that there is a benefit, and studies are showing that, there may not be a benefit at all. I think there's conflicting reports, and I have a feeling we will not agree on these. And <laughs> the two of you will not agree on this issue. It's just a sneaking suspicion I have. Um, <laughs> let's switch. I, I had a call. They didn't want to speak on the air, but Walter from Sussex County. Uh, and, and this has come out through uh, the superintendent's remarks and the senators, too. Uh, the role of the parents. Shouldn't parents be more responsible and not leave so many of their needs the kids needs to the schools and that seems to be uh the the superintendent you mentioned that you have to provide a lot of things mandated by both the state and the federal government for uh your students 
um, how do we fit parents into this role? Um, well, I, ideally, you, you know, ideally, certainly, parents should be able to provide um, all of these things that their children need. Unfortunately, we can't legislate parents. All that can be legislated is what we do in the institution. And the decisions that parents make are the decisions that parents make. We get the children. We have zero control over the outside environment. We have children for uh, six and a half hours a day. During that six and a half hours, we have to make up for every single thing that these kids need. Would it be wonderful if every parent knew how to provide uh, language experiences and background knowledge for the children? Would it be perfect if every parent could provide proper medical care, proper supervision, after-school um, enrichment activities, all of the uh, uh, proper transportation, safe supervision when the children are home on a, on a snow day? Um, yes, it is absolutely um, ideal and appropriate and important, and I know that when I chose to have my children, I made sure I had all the ducks in line. But not all parents do that, well, and we're, we're, we can't control that. And because we can't control that, you know, the commitment on the part of, of um, the United States of America is to provide services for all children and the the fundamental question is how are we going to fund it? it there's no question of what the children need um it would be nice if it came from the parents it would be great if they could first of all afford it and secondly be skilled enough to provide it but we can't legislate that and since we can't we work with what we've got and what we've got are the children from 7.30 in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 3.30 in the afternoon, depending on the grade level, and we provide what the children need. Now, if Senator, we could yeah, list some well, of the just, other ages. Let me just switch to the uh, Senator. Uh, I think she makes a, a point, and it's probably a lot of the additional money that we're spending is on things that aren't provided at home. We look. We're supposed to be providing an education. What the superintendent's talking about are social problems uh, that are to be solved by social programs. And what's happened is the Supreme Court has hijacked the entire process and basically is moving toward uh, we have an obligation under education provisions of the Constitution to to take care of that student from the moment the student wakes up to the moment the student goes home uh, or goes to bed at night. And that just can't be. We have an obligation to provide an education, but to say that all the taxpayers via constitutional order have to provide all these other services under the guise of education, see, that's where I think they're off track. We, we should solve these problems with social programs that address some of these deficiencies but these should be supplemental bills that are passed by the legislature without the court interfering. So if we make a decision we want to provide certain programs for the poor, that's fine. But for the Supreme Court of New Jersey to say that we are ordering you to fund that program and that program and that program that fall outside of the traditional educational system, that's where they're way off track. And, uh, yeah, it's certainly tragic that people come from poor economic backgrounds. Uh, but we're talking about education and education funding. 
And the numbers are so skewed now, as I said, where we have certain towns contributing 10 times as much per person but getting one-hundredth the amount. That is well, just could, un- unconscionable. Okay, you know there, are, there are poor people and there are people on a fixed income and single parents that live in my district, and somehow, by virtue of having a zip code, they're treated as if they're rich under the current system. And like I said, I'm still waiting to see the affluent people in my district. I represent a middle-class district. This idea that everybody that lives in the suburbs is affluent, these are middle-class folks who work hard that are one missed paycheck away from the poorhouse. So, right. uh, and, and they can never get ahead because they're paying ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year in property tax bills, and, and they can never even save for that rainy day because the current system for funding our schools takes so much of their money and returns so little back. And this is all being dictated by a Supreme Court that is overstepping their bounds. All right. I, well, have, a, cases, I have a – hold on, uh, Jer, uh, Superintendent. I have a question from uh, – he's on the air, Nathan Parker. I, how are you, Nathan? Hi. How are you doing? Uh, do you have a question that you wanted to ask? to Senator Doherty, Doherty. Uh, what is what would what is your solution to the long-term effects of poverty and racism that's uh, obviously prevalent in this country and and especially prevalent in New Jersey? What would be your strategy, and could you outline the steps that would overcome those long-term effects? Well, look, I think we need to provide jobs for folks. Uh, certainly, the economic engine of the United States is not producing as it has in the past. And uh, the best anti-poverty program is to have more jobs. And uh, that's what we need to do. Now, look, I I, I don't disagree uh, that there's problems in society, but the United States provides more opportunity for more people. That's why people from all over the world continue to come to the United States. And uh, it doesn't matter... Uh, where, how you were born. Let me just say, I, I've, I've served in a legislature where the, uh, the Speaker of the Assembly right now is an African-American woman. Before that, it was, uh, was Albio Ceres, who was, uh, was born in Cuba, and the family escaped from communism. So I don't subscribe to this theory that the United States is, uh, doesn't provide opportunity for people. If you work hard, you can still get ahead. And uh, so that I, I, I see plenty of opportunity everywhere. So I think you need to be a little bit more optimistic. Stop being so negative. So, Dr. Parker, your point is that if the schools don't help, we have to help somewhere else with these social problems? Well, clearly there's opportunity, but the the problem is, the challenge is for all educators is how do you overcome these long-term effects of poverty, the, the, the gap in achievement between blacks and whites, between rich and poor, between people who speak English and whose not native languages English are are huge, and there's an increasing discrepancy between the rich and the poor in the United States. The very wealthy, uh, a very very small percent of the population controls the majority of the wealth in America. Okay, uh, I have another caller that comes on, so uh, I'll just stay on hold, Nathan. Rosemary, you had a question that I was going to ask anything. You had something about special ed? Uh, yes. Uh, Senator Doherty, thanks for coming and speaking about your new school aid formula. Um, what I'm not clear about is how do you address special education? Um, with the new with our school aid formula today, you know, we do get additional aid 
um, I believe, for out-of-district placement students. So, you know, our school district is $3 million out of our $75 million budget goes to out-of-district for special education. So in your FAIR formula, how do you address special education costs? Uh, you know, that is a big cost, and, and adding a, a few students that are special needs or special education can really blow a hole in a uh, in a school district's budget. Uh, and Governor Christie has talked about a proposal uh, providing some of these special education programs on a county-wide basis that would enable the uh, various school districts to be able to handle any elevated, uh, any increase in population. And uh, I think that's a proposal that uh, sounds like a good one, something I would support. Uh, and I would also say that my proposal is for the general students. It's not for the special needs students. I would I would look to the Governor Christie proposal, doing it on a countywide basis. But this is a I'm trying to provide a framework for the vast majority of our students. And I believe that the current system that takes so much in the form of a progressive income tax and returns so little to our 85% of our towns is why their property taxes are so high. And if we're going to continually have continue to have a viable New Jersey where people want to stay here, we need to address these high property taxes. And the number one driver of high property taxes is the lack of school aid that our suburban and rural towns get, and this needs to be addressed. And everybody should have some skin in the game, and everybody should have to economize. And this is going to, in my opinion, be fair to everybody. I don't know how it's not fair when you have a progressive income tax, as I said, top 1% pay 40%, the bottom third pays zero, to then turn around after you collect all that money and hand it out equally to each student. Uh, that's That's very fair to me. Now, when you say equally to each student, you were suggesting, and I apologize, I don't know the number. Was it seven thousand per child? The numbers I the numbers I ran, uh, we'd be able to fully fund the rebate program, fully fund the uh, senior freeze on their property taxes, and also provide about seven thousand five hundred dollars per student for every student, regardless of where that student lives. Uh, if I could step in, I think the senator, do you have a website for your plan? Uh, yes, I do. My website is uh, fairschoolfunding.com, and individuals can go to the website, put their town in, and they can determine how much more school aid the town would receive, and that would go to direct property tax relief. Okay, Rosemary, I have to put you on hold because I'm getting towards the end. Um, I, I, could I make a comment about the special? Yeah, I, I just uh, I had one final question. Make your comment. Uh, the comment is that many of the things that we're required to provide for our special needs students are legislated by the federal government, and we need to follow those leg those uh, regulations. And um, while certainly we are looking for economies of scale and we're looking for any places where we can find efficiencies, that is not allowed to be the determining factor. We're required to provide whatever is necessary in order for the child to receive the appropriate education that they're supposed to be receiving. And just to give you an example, we happen to have a student in our school district who requires a one-to-one -one nurse, a one-to-one -one aide, and is in our school, attends our school on a regular, you know, day-to-day -day basis. They, re they have a one-to-one -one aide on a, on a bus that transports them day-to-day, -day, and all of those services are required in order for the child to be in our building so that we can um, we can educate the child. 
to the best of or to meet the I, the individual education plan for that particular child. Okay. Uh, those kinds uh, of things uh, are not I hate, to, I hate to cut you off, Superintendent, but we're getting to our last minute. Uh, and I didn't even get to ask my final question. Um, I'd like to thank Senator Doherty for joining us. Uh, thank you, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Superintendent Geraldine Carroll from Lindenwald, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thank you, and thank you, Senator. Uh, thank you. Our next scheduled show is July 27th, uh, on another Wednesday. Um, and that brings us to the end of Conversations for New Jersey Education. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation, which I think probably could have went on for another hour. As I, as I always say, our kids' education is too important not to talk about. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you tune in next week.